Christ our hope. Uh, that's our theme throughout this entire study in 1 Peter. And we're going to move on today um, to 1 Peter 2. Um, before we do that, I had a mentor a long time ago um, that told me, hey, go find your ministry outside the church, something that you can do uh, and not get paid for it, something that you enjoy to do. It's not a dread to go do it. Um, so when we first moved back to, to Dayton from Orlando um, in 2012, we uh, reached out and it worked out to be the, the, the Dayton Flyers football team chaplain. And so yesterday we had our, our kickoff to our seventh year. And uh, it's cool to be a part of, of the young guys' lives, the coaches' lives. Uh, it's new people all the time because guys are graduating on and new coaches are coming on. But um, I consider that ministry an extension. It's you all there. I just get to be the person that stands there. And uh, it's just a great thing. And I can't encourage you enough um, to find your niche somewhere in this community, something you already love to do, and then you just step in it and serve people um, and, and love on people and uh, continue to pray for those guys. One of the cool things is uh, with, with Jerry's ministry that he's a part of, Jerry Denninger, our elder, uh, Athletes in Action, one of the friends of mine has come alongside the team, and I don't have time to disciple, uh, to be a part with everything going on here. Uh, so there's a guy that's discipling about uh, 10 to 12 guys on the team, taking it a step further, and just so thankful for that partnership. And uh, it's just cool to see how God works, and he continues to grow his church, not necessarily a building of a church, but his church, the body of Christ around this, around this community. So let's just jump into chapter 2 of, uh, of 1 Peter. Uh, chapter 1 had a lot in it. Uh, with one of the major themes was for us to, that we can experience joy in great hardships. And we shared a line with you the last couple weeks that no matter how bad it gets, and someday, some weeks feel like this is pretty bad, right? You could, you could agree with that, that no matter how bad it gets, we can have joy in Christ Jesus. And why can we have joy? Well, apart from Christ, we probably won't. Uh, but we can have joy because Peter mentioned it. We have a new birth into a living hope. There's something greater to come through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what Jesus did on the cross for us uh, allows us to just go through some of the craziest things and yet be steady through it all. And yet have a peace and a joy about us. Because of the call that's been brought on our lives and because of what Jesus has done for us, last week at the end of chapter 1, we talked about this idea that he's, God is calling us to holiness. Because of what He did for us on the cross, we're to pursue holiness, to be set apart, to be different. We shouldn't look exactly like this world and think like this world for our citizenship. citizenship. You ever tried to say a word but you didn't have any air to get the word out? That's what just happened right there. Because I need to breathe as I talk. Um, that our citizenship's not on this world, but it's of heaven. And that's what Peter is pointing this group that is experiencing, remember the audience he wrote to, experiencing great persecution under the emperor Nero, running for their lives. Children and families are being split apart, if you will. And in the midst of it, Peter commends them for having joy and great difficulty. So Peter's saying in view of the cross, in view of the hope of heaven, in view of Jesus really raising from the dead three days later, he said this in this verse, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. We're to live out our time on this earth, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years, whatever we get gifted with, 
We're to live it out with reverent fear, a holy fear. Simply meaning we need to pursue holiness because of what Jesus has done for you and for me. I want to start before we jump into the passage today asking you a question. If I was to invite you up here or you had to uh, maybe grab coffee with someone, the whole goal of that was for you to share, share who you are. You need to share everything about you. You need to, to help identify some things about yourself. Uh, most of us, that wouldn't be our favorite task, right? I mean, we, we would not like to come up here and share about our lives and everything about us so that the crowd can get to know us better. And we have all kinds of ways for which we would describe ourselves. And that's my question. How would you describe yourself, maybe to this room, or maybe just to one individual, so if they knew nothing about you, in a short 30 minutes, they could get to know you really, really well. We would describe things such as our families probably, right? Our backgrounds, maybe geographically where we've lived since we've been born. Uh, maybe our kids or our spouse or our, where we went to school, right? Or maybe the, the degree that we completed or, or uh, the hobbies that we have on our life. Or maybe our favorite sports teams. All of these ways of which we try to identify ourselves so that the world can get a picture of who we are. This is what I do, so this is who I am. That's what we tell people. We tell people often when we're asked about ourselves. But any and every way that you could describe yourself, you could identify who you are, think about this, would pale in comparison to who Jesus says that you are. It would pale in comparison. You could give it your best shot. You could give every great attribute, every great thing you've ever done, and it would pale in the comparison of how your Savior in heaven sees you and would, I, and would identify and would identify you. And that's the theme that we're going to see in this, in this second chapter of 1 Peter, that it's, it's, a, it's less about maybe who we say we are. It's less about how we would describe ourselves to the world. And it's more about whose we are, right? And we're children of the Most High God. So Peter jumps in, and in Galatians 2, Paul talks about this. But we don't often think of this as an identity or uh, how we identify ourselves. But Galatians 2.20 does a great job. It says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. What a way to describe yourself, right? But Christ lives in me, so the life I now live in the body, it's not about me anymore. It's not about all my hopes and desires and wishes and wants. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. In church, when we truly begin to understand our true identity, everything else seems to fall into place. It changes the trajectory, truly, of our lives when we know our identity is in Christ alone. So Peter, in this passage, he's going to share a lot of stuff. He's going to talk about the church being God's spiritual house. Uh, he's going to use some old, you know, references from the Old Testament that will really, uh, you know, his readers will identify with and will understand. You're going to see language of Peter talking about the living stones, which his readers would have understood to be Israel. He's going to use a word called the cornerstone, which the, his readers would have known to be to be Jesus. And Peter writes this letter, this chapter to them, reminding them that Jesus didn't come to wipe out all of your, you know, Jewish heritage. He came to fulfill it. He came as, as the, one last, uh, the one last thing that we need to pursue oneness, righteousness, being right standing with our God. So Peter's saying this. He's saying this is about identifying, you're going to hear some words, some great, great words. 
about how Jesus sees you, how he sees you and me. But he emphasizes that our true identity, it's not in all the stuff, you know, the ways you would describe yourself. Our true identity is in Christ alone. Our true identity is being one in the body of Christ as we carry on this great mission uh, on, this, on this earth. And that because of that, we should strive to be obedient. Uh, we should strive to be usable vessels for the kingdom of God. How many of you in here would say, I want my life, I want to be a usable vessel so that the kingdom of God can expand. All of us would say, I want to do that. Well, Peter says there's some things that need to happen. There's some tough things that we need to hear as we carry that out. So he jumps in in chapter 2, if you have your Bible, you can, in verse 1. Remember at the end of chapter 1, he, he reminded this group of persecuted Christians, hey, love one another deeply. Uh, you're, not, you're not of perishable seed, but you're of imperishable seed. Cling to the Word of God. And he says, because of who you're called to be, therefore rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. This must have been going on, I have to guess, in his culture that he wrote to. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And then he jumps in in verse 4. As you come to Him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to Him, you also, like living stones, uh, are being built into a spiritual house. He's talking about the body of Christ. To be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture, he points back to the Old Testament, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in Him will never be put to shame. That's a great promise for us to cling to. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But, bad news, I guess, to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. He didn't say they, they don't believe the message. He says they disobey. They, they, they know the message. They just, they're disobedient to it. But you are a chosen people. And listen to these great words to describe the body of Christ. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now... You are the people of God. Things have changed. Uh, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, you're not citizens of this world, you're citizens of heaven, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live. Listen to this. This is huge. Not for then, but for now as well. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. A lot going on in this passage. There's a lot of stuff. Uh, and Peter is trying to describe who we are in Christ Jesus, what we have received, this great gift that we've received in Christ Jesus. And for the people that are running for their lives, these scattered, persecuted Christians, this is, this is hope. This is good news for them. 
And what's one of the first descriptors that he uses to, to describe who we are in Christ Jesus? He calls us a royal, a royal priesthood. I don't know how many of you in the room, when you think of a royal priest, have thought of yourself as a royal priest. Anybody in here? I, I don't know. If you ever thought of yourself as a royal, as a royal priest, what comes to mind? I mean, when you think of a royal priest, quite often it's probably not the person to your left or to your right, but if you were to look to your left and to your right, this room is full. Don't go around walking around letting everybody know this is your new title, but this room is full of royal priests. Why? Because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. This room is full of what what the Bible says you are His chosen, you're His chosen people. We're a royal priesthood. We're, we're holy, the Bible says. And what it shows us is, is truly just how much, how much our Father in heaven, how much He loves us. Verse 9, none of you would put this on a t-shirt and, and wear it to local restaurants and to local stores. But it says you are God's special possession. How many of you would feel comfortable walking around town? God's special possession, right? Probably none of us. But I want you to wrap your head around today. That's how your Father in Heaven sees you. That's how He sees the body of Christ. That's how He sees His people. That that you are His chosen. You are His special possession. And as Peter's writing to this letter to these persecuted Christians, imagine the hope that's in that. Because they don't know what's coming tomorrow. They don't know what's coming for their family next week. They don't even know where they're going to live or where maybe in some cases their next meal is going to be. So they hear that they're a royal priesthood, that they're chosen, that they're God's special possession. It, it shows value, doesn't it? It shows how important they are to their, to their Father in heaven. And he wants us to understand this. Peter wants us to understand that our identity is not in all the stuff around us and all the ways that you would do your best at describing yourself. No, no, no. Your identity is in Christ. Your identity is in Christ alone. And it comes back last week. Remember we talked about some motivations for pursuing a holy life. This is a huge one because of the descriptors, because of who Jesus says that we are. That He paid the price. He he, he paid the cost. And as a result, our our life should be a living sacrifice back to Him to pursue holiness. To be set apart. To live lives that are different than what's going on in this world. So we see Peter talk about that at the beginning of chapter 2. And he says, hey, before... Before we jump into a lot, persecuted church, there's some things that you need to get rid of. You need to put off. You need to put, you need to put away. If we're going to truly be Christ's chosen, His special possession, then we need to live lives that are obedient unto Him. And he says in verse 1-3, through three, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So Peter starts this section talking about our identity in Christ. He starts it by saying, hey, there's some things. There's some things you need to stop. There's some things that you need to draw a line in the sand and be done with. 
This idea that, that, that if you're to love one another deeply, there's no way you can carry that out. There's no way you can love one another deeply if you have some attitudes, if you have some sin in your life, if there's some hindrances that are pushing you away from living in the fullness of God. So Peter says, here they are. Here's some things you need to put off. Here's some things you need to get rid of. And this wasn't just relevant to the church back then. It's ever relevant to us today. The reason why is we've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed. Through the living and enduring Word of God. When you were born anew in Christ, you were given the power to, to, to run away from the, from the old ways. You were able to push away the things of the past, the sin. So it's about who are we becoming. And what does he say first? He says, get rid of malice. you got to get rid of malice, church. you got to get rid of it, persecuted Christians in Peter's day. This means doing evil despite the good that has been received. Jesus did everything He could to show you how much He loves you, and yet we hand out malice to people. We hurt people. Uh, we, 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 we run over people. We harm people. It's a, it's a tough word, but there's, uh, there's people in our culture, we, we can hate people at times. Our carnal heart will lead us to those places where somebody gets under our skin and and we can really believe that, that we hate them. Uh, malice can, can be hidden underneath the surface of maybe even some good motives. But really, you're just out to get them. And imagine Peter's audience that's receiving this news. Do you, do you think they're on the receiving end of malice every day? Most certainly they are. And Peter's saying, don't return it. Whatever you do as a church, you need to, you need to put off, you need to get away from that. You need to put it away, and you need to get rid, get rid of malice. The second one he says is to get rid of, of deceit. Stop deliberately tricking or misleading by lying. Stop deliberately tricking and, and misleading by lying to deceive someone else. Do we have in our culture today, uh, there's deceitfulness everywhere? We could all say, yes, there is. As Christ followers, we're raised to a higher standard. We're called to live our lives in such a way that where we pursue, actively pursue holiness. We must never forsake doing right to get ahead. We must never forsake doing right to win. We must never forsake doing right so we can have a, maybe a financial or a material windfall come our way. Peter says, get rid of deceit. The third one he talks about is, is put off hypocrisy. Uh, don't say one thing and then uh, either do another or actively uh, carry out another. But to be a hypocrite is, is to play act. And maybe present a, a good motive, but really what's belief, beneath the surface is a, is a selfish desire. If there's one thing that's probably ran away, more people, even Christians in the local church, and said, I want nothing to do with the church again, it's because hypocrisy has been lived out in front of them. And they got really hurt by it. And it's everywhere in our culture. And we're called to a higher standard to be who we say we are. Peter says get rid of jealousy. This idea of desiring something that someone else possesses or, or owns. It can lead us to, to hearts that, that have no gratitude because we're not even thankful for the things that God has blessed us with. And He's blessed us with a lot of things. On this earth, right? A lot of good things. But yet we see what everyone else has and we think, I need that. 
We can live jealous, jealous lives. It, it can lead us to make unhealthy comparisons to everyone else around us. If there's, if there's one time in history where this could be more alive and well than any other time in history, it's probably today in 2019 with all the avenues, all the ways we can look at everybody else and say, I want that, I need that, I desire that. And we have jealousy inside of our hearts. It makes us unable to be thankful when something good happens for someone else instead of being happy for them. We talk about it and it frustrates us and it maybe even angers us. And Peter says, get rid of it. The last one Peter says is we, we have to say no to. We have to draw a line in the sand. It's to put, put off and get rid of backstabbing. It means destroying someone else's good reputation by lies, by, by, by gossip, if you will, by rumor spreading. It can manifest itself to, to, to be full-out malice to other people. We, we can hurt them. We can harm them. And we can do things that are just completely contrary to God's Word. Church backstabbing is alive and well. And it's not alive and well out there. It's alive and well in the church. If you find yourself talking about someone more than you've actually ever even talked to them, uh, there's an issue there. And you need to go straight to them if you've got a problem. Instead of backstabbing and talking behind their back and gossiping and, and rumor spreading. There's nothing that makes, makes me more frustrated than when Christians do this about other churches. We don't ever badmouth another church in this community. We don't ever badmouth another church down the road or in this a, a God-ordained movement, a God-ordained call of the body of Christ. And how dare we look at it and say, well, they got this going on and I can't believe they would do it. We, we don't ever do that. Why? Because we're a part of one big body of Christ. We don't backstab. Peter says get rid of backstabbing. What would it look like for the local church if we would hunt 100% if all of this would be removed from who we are and how we are, can you see how it would function in such a healthy manner? Can you see how exciting relationally it would be to be there? That's why Peter says, get rid of it. Because as Christ followers, we've been called to a higher calling. We've been called to, to, to something greater. That we're made new in Christ. So he starts this chapter out by saying, here's all the things you need to get rid of, uh, you need to put away with. And then, he, and then he starts talking about some things that we understand and we can engage with. He talks about cravings, which all of us have cravings, right? He talks about taste. We always talk about every day what we taste and what we like. He talks about babies and, and, and spiritual milk, stuff that we can identify with. And in 1 Peter 2, uh, 2 and 3, he says, Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So put off all that other stuff, but I want you to crave pure spiritual milk. We have a living testimony in our house every day of someone that craves milk, right? Jude, he's going to be 14 months old next week. And if you talk about milk, if you talk about a bottle, he lights up like a Christmas tree because he wants it right now, right? He wants it right now. And so if we get a bottle out and we begin to warm that bottle, uh, the anxiousness, the desire, the craving gets even greater, and he starts to remind us of that through all of his squeals and noises that, that he makes. And then finally, when he receives the bottle that took forever to warm, they need to make quicker warmers besides the microwave. And that's, you shouldn't microwave breast milk, but 
I've done that a few times with our other two boys, and I learned my lesson, is this. As he gets the milk in 2.2 seconds, it's gone because he craved it. He longs for it. He wants it. And then he could drink another one right after that. Why? Because he, he longs for it. And Peter says in this passage, persecuted Christians, church today, what would it look like for you to long for, to crave the nourishment that can sustain and that can grow you through God's Word? There's not a greater miracle in the world than a mother's milk that can help grow a youngster up and, and begin to shape and to form and make them a healthy being. And Peter says, just like that, just like that, what would it look like for you to crave, to desire, to long for, to want, to experience the goodness of God's Word? Church, we crave all kinds of things, don't we? I don't know about you, but I have those cravings throughout the day or week. Anybody ever just crave? You, you, whatever your favorite piece of candy is, you craved it during a day? Or maybe like every day, and that's, that's a problem? Or maybe chocolate. Anybody just crave chocolate once in a while? I don't, we don't drink a lot of uh, you know, Cokes at our house, but I, there's, at times we crave a Coke. Anybody just need, you need a Coke because you crave it. You want it. Pizza? You just, there's something about it. Let's just pray and, and go now, right? And go, go indulge in all of our cravings. You drive down 48. Faye was in here. Uh, Faye and Bill that founded Bill's Donuts. She attends first service. You drive by 48, and it's 75 deep, you know, of people in the line. But if you crave it, you'll wait, right? So you'll go into Bill's. We crave all kinds of things. And Peter's saying in that same manner, what would it look like for you to crave to be more like Jesus? To desire the things that He desires. To have a heart like He has. Why would Peter have to say this? I think one big reason is because it wasn't going on. They were craving everything but. And it's still alive and well today in 2019 that we can crave everything but. But this. So how do we change our appetite, right? How do we change our desires? How do we change so what we naturally want are the good things that God wants us to have and to be a part of and to experience. How do we get to that place? Well, there's no easy answer. It just it takes time. It takes time of daily, as Galatians said, dying to self. Of realizing that, that I am a, a new creation. And over time, as we begin to grow in our walk with Christ, our appetite, it will change. And we'll lean towards the things of God. But Peter says it first, it first starts by stopping. He said in verse 11, I urge you, foreigners and exiles, you know you're not citizens of this earth but heaven, to abstain, to stop, to draw a line in the sand, if you will, from sinful desires. No longer should they be a part of your life, which wage war against your soul. So Peter says there's things we need to say no to, right? If you want to change your appetite, we know nutritionally, you need to push away from some things, right? Or you're going to continue to crave them over and over again. Um, some of you remember going through the 21-day fast in, in January last year as a church. Those first five days, I had a pounding headache every day because there was no coffee, there was no caffeine. I wasn't eating all the things I was eating before because my body was what? It was detoxing from that stuff. The same thing happens spiritually. As we begin to abstain, as we begin to say no, our cravings change. 
And Peter says we need to rid ourselves. We need to learn to abstain. We need to remind ourselves often there is a war against our soul. There's a war against our soul. And spiritually speaking, one of the best things many of us in this room could do today is a spiritual detox. To draw a line in the sand and to say, I'm going to abstain from that. I'm not going to chase after that any longer. I'm not going to allow that to fill my mind anymore. Why? Because we're called to live differently. We're called to to pursue differently. We're called to, to even crave differently. And in Ephesians 4, it says to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the question I want to ask you today is, what is it that God's calling you to rid yourself of? If you had a one o'clock appointment at one of the local coffee shops and it's just you and Jesus across the table, and He looks you square in the eye and He says, you need to get rid of that. What is it? Maybe it's more than one thing. I wrote a few things down to get our minds stirring today. But what is, it he, what is he calling you to get rid of? Materialism? Jealousy? The desire for more? All the words we talked about earlier? Malice? Unforgiveness? I'm a firm believer you can't have this relationship going on and pretend it's all great when all these are not great. And there's unforgiveness in your heart and bitterness and anger. Another one is, is, is pornography. I saw an article recently by a local, a large national ministry that said the pornography industry has more revenue than the, than the NBA, the MLB, the National Football League, and, uh, and professional soccer combined per year. Lust, anger, a foul mouth. Why would Peter say this? Because any attitude, any hindrance, any sin that's waging war against our soul will ruin our next step in Christ. Because that will be the thing we're craving. And our actions will determine our appetites, won't they? That every day, the actions we just keep carrying out will determine our appetite for the next day. And then we'll want more. And it's the, it's the vicious cycle of addiction and how that takes place as well. But when you think of it, what comes to mind? What spiritual toxins, if you will, are holding you back from experiencing the fullness that that our God wants you to experience? What would it look like today to to repent and flush it out of your system so that you can experience wholeness with God? Detoxing is never fun. The first five days of the fast was not awesome because I had a headache every day. But man, when I got past those days... I got into the second week. I no longer crave the sugary item. I crave something a little bit more healthy. And the same thing is true spiritually for us. That when we begin to change what we crave and we respond to God in such a way that God, I want to be obedient in every area of my life. And that thing that you're saying get rid of, I need to get rid of it because it's not leading me to be more like Jesus. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that it may grow up in your salvation so that it, by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is, is good. 
What you feed yourself is what you will crave, not only nutritionally, but spiritually. And we're called church to a higher standard. We're called to rid ourselves of all the wrong things and fill ourselves with the God things of our lives. What else is Peter saying this? He says, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And he points back to Jeremiah 15, the taste and see, you've heard that passage possibly, taste and see that the Lord is good. And some of you in here that have tasted the goodness of God, you can point to the goodness of God in your life, you can feel the goodness of God, you understand the goodness of God, you would never go back, right? Because you've experienced it, you've tasted it. You know the goodness, the goodness of God, and you, you understand it like never before. And because of that, you wouldn't dare fill your life with cheap substitutes. Our world in every sphere of our life, from food to what you see to you name it, is filled with cheap substitutes. Some of you may remember when your parents would, would give you growing up, it's all you knew is maybe a cheap substitute to a food, and then all of a sudden you had the real thing. And you're like, I will never have that cheap substitute ever again in my life, right? Because you've had the real thing, the same is true spiritually. That when you've, you've experienced the real thing, a true, authentic, real relationship with Jesus, uh, you will never crave that of, of the old of what you craved before. Because you're being made a new creation in Christ Jesus. Changing our appetites starts with, with, with changing our actions. And Peter would say, in, in a lot of cases, it starts, with, it starts with stopping. Why? Because you've tasted that the Lord is good. I want to ask you this. What are you feeding yourself? What is it that you're craving? What is it that you keep finding yourself heading back to day after day, week after week? Nutritionally, if you keep feasting on junk, you're going to feel like junk, right? Spiritually speaking, you keep feasting on junk, you're going to spiritually feel, feel like junk. You're not going to experience the fullness and wholeness of God. It'll never satisfy. It'll never quench your thirst. It'll never curb your appetite. But Peter says, crave this. Crave the things of God, the desires of God. And it will. You'll experience peace. You can experience fullness. You'll experience wholeness. The Bible says that, that Jesus is like He's living water for us. And the more we crave the living water, we'll never thirst again, the Bible says. He says that, that, that He is the bread of heaven. And the more we, 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 we crave and we long for that bread, we'll never hunger. We'll never hunger again the Bible says. So I close with this challenge for us to think about as we leave. I think the challenge that's being issued to us in 1 Peter chapter 2 is this. You know who you are in Christ. So go live like it. You're a royal priesthood. You're a chosen people. You're, you're His special possession. You're holy. You're you're, you are set apart. And the question that 1 Peter 2 asks us is, is, are you living like it? Is there fruit to prove it? Do you crave the pure spiritual milk? And maybe that's your prayer as we close in this worship set today, is that you crave the pure spiritual milk that comes from, that comes from God, God alone. 
Church, there's no higher calling. Ephesians talks about live a life worthy of the calling you've received. There is no higher calling than that of a Christ follower. There's no higher calling than for anybody else on this planet, for any group of people, than the body of Christ. And we're called to live like it. We're called to pursue holiness. I close with this quote from Henry Nouwen, great author. I've written a lot of stuff on his books throughout school days. Very deep spirituality. One, if you like self-care stuff, he's just he's spot on. So here's what Henry Nouwen says in his book, Here and Now, Living in the Spirit. Jesus came to announce to us that an identity based on success, popularity, and power is a false identity. It's an illusion. Every single one of those things are what our our culture cheers us on. We rally around them, right? It's all about success and popularity and power and all of it. Jesus comes and loudly and clearly He says, you are not what the world makes you, but you are children of God. Because of who Jesus says we are, because of the promises that are all throughout Scripture, because He is the one that ultimately identifies who we are, you are not of this world, but you are children, children of God. As we wrap up in singing, sometimes we can get locked into the song and sing and worship, and that's awesome. But God may also be knocking at the door of your heart and challenging you in some areas with your cravings, challenging you in the area of the things you're longing for most. And maybe for some, He's saying, at the coffee shop right across from him, you need to abstain. You need to get rid of them. And maybe you come to him at this day and say, today's the day. It's done. I'm not going to keep filling the void with that any longer. Let me pray. God, thank you for your church. God, thank you that you loved us in some of our ugliest moments of our life. You've loved us through those moments, moments we're not proud of, Moments where we were broken and hurting. Moments where we were craving all the wrong things, making a mockery of our walk with you because we were in pursuit of things that were contrary to you. God, you want us to experience wholeness and fullness. You don't want to see your children's lives be destroyed because of terrible choices of what the world keeps throwing at us. The great tempter, the great deceiver, our enemy, the devil. And our enemy, the devil, knows exactly when to whisper, exactly when to have something shared with us that can just take us over the edge. God, I pray that we'd be alert. We'd be on uh, on guard, that we would stand firm in the faith in those moments. God, that our actions would begin to change our appetites because we're, we're pursuing the things of God now, not the things of this world and indulging in the flesh. Thank you for 1 Peter 2. Let it be a chapter that we refer to often so that we can curb our appetites towards the pure spiritual milk that you call us to long for. We pray this all in your name. Amen.